Hello, everyone. This is Mark Vino with more insights and strategy. Today is Thursday, April 30th, 2020. Um, I feel compelled yet to do another podcast because I reached out to a few of my, um, some three uh, very good friends of mine. I, I consider them friends. Hopefully they consider myself a friend. They'll probably, they'll probably uh, uh, refute that when they uh, start talking. But, no. it's, uh, th- <laughs> but it's actually three very talented journalists who I've gotten a chance to meet over the last couple of years. Um, uh, during my work with more insights and strategy. And uh, since the hot topic, um, and I I don't even think it's been talked in the death because it's a very, very popular topic when I write about it, or certainly when I do podcasts about it, that's really the work from home topic. And I'm lucky to have three journalists who I've worked uh, very closely with who've been working from home from years uh, for years. So they're they're obviously not new to the category. Uh, And that is Rob Pegagero, Stuart Wolpin, and John Quain. Uh, each of them, I'll let them introduce themselves. I would bet money that you have, uh, in the audience, you have probably read or listened to them on other podcasts. But let me give a, a shout out to these three guys. And I'll start with Stuart to introduce himself. Hi, I'm Stuart Walpin. I've been sheltering in place and gainfully unemployed for about 35 years. So working <laughs> at home is, is not that big. It's like no change. Everybody says, oh, how is everybody adapting? Uh, there's no adapting. My Nothing has changed. Oh, well, that, in some ways, that's refreshing to hear, Stuart, that nothing has changed. That's good to hear. Rob, please introduce I'm, yourself. I'm Rob Pegarero. I have not had a real job for just over nine years. I've been freelancing from various places since 2011. And uh, things have changed, honestly, because in that all that time I've been working from home, I didn't have other warm bodies in the house with me. Mm. So child care is its own special thing in this context. And uh, yeah, my wife has been working from home as well. She finally got her own home office set up and she did better than me because the room she commandeered has a futon. So if she wants to, she can take a nap much easier than I can. <laughs> I suspect the uh, the warm bodies content uh, topic will be one that we probably hit in detail when we get into the heart of the uh, podcast, but uh, uh, welcome to the podcast. John, please introduce yourself. I'm John Quain, and I've been freelancing for, I'm not even going to tell you how long I've been doing it for. I'm a science and technology reporter, so I cover a wide variety of things from autonomous vehicles for the New York Times to, you know, nuclear power for Gizmodo. So a lot of different things. I've been doing this for as long as these guys have. I don't have a futon in my office, but I do have a beanbag chair in my office. That's good. <laughs> is, it a, is it a smart beanbag, uh, smart beanbag chair? No, but you know, I do have a smart pillow that I never use. But anyway, that's another story. Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> let, let's start the podcast off this way, because I, I, I'm sure this has happened to each of you three guys. It certainly happened to me. And that is, ever since this whole thing has started, I've been pinged by friends, colleagues, you know, people that have read um, a lot of my work on Forbes. And that is, you know, can you provide me with some tips, you know, especially for people who haven't worked from home? You know, it's a new world for them. And it's not as simple as, hey, let me just bring my laptop home from the office, plug it in, and I'm off to the races. So, uh, let, I'll, Stuart, I'll start with you. Is that, you know, if you're advising someone who's going to be working from home for a sustained period of time, what uh, couple of tips would you give them to get off to a good start? Most important is to maintain a regular schedule. The mm-hmm. minute you start lapsing into traipsing around the house in your pajamas or your gym shorts or whatever, you have lost the game. If you don't maintain some semblance of regularity, 
then you're and regularity includes not only when you're going to work or when you're not going to work one of the be biggest traps in working from home is that you you tend to work all the time and that really starts to grate on everybody who lives around you and you lose your own sense of self so you need to set at least some vague schedule for yourself i'm going to work in these hours I'm not going to work in these hours and try to maintain a regular schedule as best you can. That sounds like very sage advice. Very sage advice. Uh, Rob, let's start with you. Uh, actually, much the same thing. You know, you need to make sure you actually do still have some sort of distinction between work and work life and home life, even though they're in the same physical place. Having a separate space helps. It is also well advised for tax purposes to get the home office deduction. Um, <laughs> thanks to us needing some really expensive repairs on uh, our front porch last year. Apparently, I didn't actually make that much money <laughs> because don't don't get your front porch fixed if you don't have to. Just my tip to listeners. Um, yeah, physically separate place. Uh, try to stick to some sort of schedule. Don't have lunch at your desk. You may have done that all the time at the office. You don't have to do that at home. And that's one thing you can do to sort of keep some mental distance and boundaries around your workspace in your house or home or apartment or whatever. Uh, do And I'll, I'll open this up to the three of you. Do you find that when, and I, I suspect this is probably a bigger problem for people who've been working at the office for a, at an office for a period of time, is that when they do come home, to work at, the, uh, um, at home, to work on a sustained basis, it's hard for them to separate work life from personal life. I, I've, I've gotten that from a, from a few people in that, you know, the, what happens is you don't know how to turn it off. You know, you know, you're not just working eight hours, you're working 10, 12 hours. I mean, we know what our smartphones have done to us. Our smartphones have made us all 24 seven people. But have you found that that dynamic happens? You know, that it's very, very hard that, you know, you get caught up in your work, people now expecting you to be available 24 seven because you're home all the time in front of a computer. So how do you deal with that dynamic? For me, the biggest challenge has not been that so much since that's been a part of my existence all along, but life is a lot more interrupt driven. Uh, we do mm. have a nine year old at home who, you know, misses her classmates like crazy. I can't blame her for that. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there's a lot more distractions and, um, yeah, things things just get done slower, and and I have you know, we're just a two parents, one kid, single parents going through this. They should get the Presidential Medal of Freedom or something when this is all done, because I don't know how they're doing it. <laughs> how, how have you dealt, Rob, with the um, with the uh, schooling from home? Have you done has has any of that happened? Has that happened? Yeah. So for the first uh, the first few weeks, like up until theoretical spring break, which became fake spring break by being exactly identical to the week before and after it, uh, they, they were, you know, trying to send along lessons. And then they basically decided we're not going to teach anything new. You know, we're just going to send a couple of lessons down a week. And it's been very hesitant at adoption. And our, our kid has just blown off a lot of the stuff. And I think that's mm -hmm. true of a lot of children around. And, you know, I, I, <laughs> I hope she's getting graded pass fail. I hope we as parents are getting graded pass fail. Uh, and it could be worse. Uh, the, the next county over Fairfax County, they decided they were going to do a full remote learning implementation using Blackboard, uh, even though they had not installed like the last eight updates from Blackboard. And so they launched this and there was no attempt to secure it from outsiders. You had random people jumping in, 
doing what internet trolls do except to kids and it was a real disaster so mm-hmm. yeah uh, remote learning we're, we're just trying to make sure that our kid is learning new things some way or another whether it's reading or you know making sure she knows what's going on in the world and how this affects her right. but yeah the idea that distance education is going to solve everything i've become a lot more skeptical about that I agree with that. I, it's going to be it's going to be challenging. Now, it's, of course, it's going to vary too from the grade level the kids in and um, the educational system because it's it's not going to be equally applied everywhere in terms of the way they execute um, the work the uh, study from home model. But John, I want to get you into the conversation here. Um, what's your thoughts? What advice are you giving you know friends and people that you get uh, you get uh, pinged on in terms of hey, how do I work from home in a very effective way? You've been doing it a long time. So, what's your advice? I'm not as disciplined. I'm not as disciplined as these guys are. <laughs> <laughs> you call disciplined. You know, um, and it, those long days do happen quite a bit. Um, you know, you do a radio show in the morning at, you know, seven in the morning. So suddenly you're up really early and doing research for something. And then you're interviewing somebody in another country at, you know, eight o'clock at night. So that's pretty easy to get into that kind of trap. And people mm-hmm. expect it, say, oh, well, we'll just push it off to this time. Um, one thing I do sometimes is basically take a couple of hours right in the middle of the day and say, you know what? I'm going to go and ha- make myself a nice lunch and settle down and read a chapter of a book and take a break right in the middle of the day. Because just to give yourself some time to, and especially now with all the stress and anxiety, to just relax for a little while and take a little break. And, uh, you mm-hmm. know, with the family two kids at home, it gives you some time in the middle of the day. That's one thing I'd recommend. The other is cover up that camera. Uh, I had one <laughs> of the very first uh, DSL lines. That'll tell you how long I've been doing this. <laughs> when video conferencing was new and, and there was no such thing as even see you, see me didn't exist yet. And I remember <laughs> to Stuart's point, I had the camera on thinking, hey, this is cool. This video conferencing thing, that's really cool. And somebody rang it and it answered automatically. And before I could get to it, there I was in my gym shorts and all sweaty and nothing else, just my shorts uh, in front of his camera. So, uh, you know, I know it sounds silly. Put something over the camera. It's a good idea. You know, a lot of security people will tell you the same thing. Because even though you think you have it set to be off, you just don't yes. know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, what's interesting is that it's a bit off topic here, is, but, uh, but it's on topic in some ways in that we're using Zoom to conduct this call. And you know, right. reason, one of the reasons why Zoom has become so popular, you know, its advantage is really was its disadvantage. It was, it's so easy to use. I mean, and, and what's amazing about it's, you know, it's kind of a march to success. You know, if you determine, if, if you define success as people using your product, they've certainly have seen a big uptake in that over the last uh, six weeks or so, is that um, people are using Zoom, not just for business related calls, they're now using it for family reunions, virtual dates. I mean, I, I conducted a, uh, a family call on Easter, you know, with uh, probably 12 of my relatives, nieces, nephews all over the place. And uh, I don't think I would have even tried to attempt that with Skype, you know, or, uh, and, and that, not to say that it's the, it's the only product out there that's easy to use, but it, it did have security issues and it, they, they've started to address them. They, they announced a new build yesterday that has some encryption built into it. What's your, you know, just from a Zoom perspective, what, I, I want to ask Rob that question first. What's your, your thoughts on the security 
um, hot water that Zoom has been in over the last few weeks because our, our, our uh, firm has taken a very strong stance in them and the, that, uh, that you have to be, you have, really have to use, use Zoom's product uh, with your eyes open. And especially they had some issues, as you know, with, um, with some video that was, um, uh, that was uh, being hijacked uh, yep. in, in Asia, if I'm not mistaken. People found out that there was hours and hours and hours of video content they did not want to get leaked, got leaked. But anyway, Rob, let me tee that question off to you. So Zoom got into this situation they, they were not prepared for. I actually think mm-hmm. they've responded well. They have asked smart people who know their stuff to come in and say, tell us what we're doing wrong. I'm thinking mm-hmm. people like Alex Stamos uh, with Stanford used to yes. be Facebook's chief mm-hmm. uh, security officer. Uh, Leah Kistner, who helped work on privacy issues with Google. Uh, Katie Mosaurus with Luda Security uh, founded the, started the Pentagon's bug bounty program. If you hire people like that to say, tell us where we're screwing up, then you will probably get better. And I've seen the, the application improve in terms of it now updates itself like a normal Mac application, yes. not using any weird workarounds. Some things take a few more clicks, but they've actually looked at what the weak points are. And, and that's good of them because what they have is a product that works. It's cross-platform. Um, you know, it's, it's not end-to-end encrypted like FaceTime, but can't use FaceTime on my Android phone or my Windows laptop. Exactly. Um, you know, it's, it's, we need an app, something like this. Somebody else could have done it. It's a, somebody should do a story. You know, what, why didn't Skype, <laughs> why wasn't Skype ready for this sort of use case, but yep. it's not, and we're not using it. Uh, John, your thoughts. Yeah. The, the, you know, the security issues came up pretty rapidly and it was pretty easy to, you know, get the number, cut and paste the number and somebody else would have it or, do a brute force, just kind of randomly dial in and hit into somebody's Zoom uh, conference call. And that, that was just certainly a problem. But, you know, what I kept telling people this time was, you know what, it's probably worth the security risk. Um, you know, being so isolated and trying to work with people and, uh, you know, overcome the situation. In this case, it was kind of like, you know what, this time I'm going to give you a pass on the security thing. Go ahead and use it. It's probably worth it. Be advised, however, that what you do in front of the camera or talk about may be recorded or what have you. Um, but in this case, it, you know, and it it reminds me of Dropbox. I remember when they those guys started, and they basically had no security at all on it. Mint was another product like that, a financial product that had no security on it. Mm, and right. uh, it took them a while, but they eventually did add those features um, into the software. Um, yeah, the Skype question, Rob, was interesting because I love Skype. I've used it for years and I'm still using it, but you know, it got purchased and changed hands a few times and it's just kind of left behind. Yep. And, and Google, they, they should have had a shot, but they, they, as far as I can tell, I used to joke that, you know, Google changes the name of its uh, collaboration chat software every time somebody throws a no hitter in baseball. But I guess now it's every time the, the White House changes press secretaries. Uh, what is, now, is it Google Meet or Google Chat or hang Hangout? But something else. You know, you know, it, it's funny. I mean, I think that, you know, well, that's what happens, of course, when, you know, a market opens up and, you know, uh, to Rob's point, I mean, it's, I, I do agree that they've, um, I think they're headed in the right direction. They've certainly got the right advisors to, to tell them, hey, here's where you're messing up. They still have some ways to go, you know, in terms of getting to where they need to be. Um, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic. And um, 
And I think it's an important one because the, the one thing that is clear that after this is all over, um, the work from home thing is not going to stop. It's not going to go away. I mean, I think right. there's going to be a number of companies that it will have discovered that were not work from home oriented before. will find, hey, you know what? Our workforce stayed largely very productive. Um, we were able to cut down on um, OPEX from a maintaining offices standpoint. I mean, that's a big problem, of course, in Northern California where office space has been at a premium. Um, I mean, it's delightful being able to drive up to 280 or 101 in, in Northern California without seeing any traffic. Now, it's obviously going to change, of course, when things go back to semi-normal. But, I mean, there are some, you know, nice, uh, there's some nice consequences, frankly, for this. Um, yeah, so, Stuart, let me, let me ask you a question. Is that what do you think um, the long-term effects of the, uh, the work from home you know, usage model change is going to be after we get past the pandemic. Do you think this will stay with us for some time? Yes and no. There was a couple of years ago, there was this whole move to work at home and a couple of major companies cleared out their offices. And because the companies thought that they were going to get this economic advantage by not having to rent all this office space that had people could telecommute. And what a lot of these companies discovered that while people physically can work from home, from a psychological and from a teamwork basis, it didn't work. You had to have people together to get what I would call serendipitous synchronicity, in other words, uh, or serendipitous socialization. In other words, the personal interaction with people and the physical interaction with people proved to be a lot more valuable in getting things done in the workplace than simply people having spending seven out of the eight hours that they work a day not talking to anybody in the office. So I know a lot of companies who started going, oh, we could save all this money on office space and people with all this technology can work from home. They make the mistake that a lot of people do in the technology space. Mm -hmm. They can do it does not mean that they should do it. And mm -hmm. so what we're going to see is that a lot of companies feel, oh, we made out okay during the pandemic. Why don't we just continue that? They will continue it because it seemed to work on a technological level. But at a mm -hmm. certain point, everybody's going to say, this worked much better when we were all together, even with the interruptions or whatever, that serendipitous socialization is a key part of building teamwork, um, corporate culture, and all of the things that make working for a particular company much more valuable than people working on their own. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I think the one thing, you know, I think you've made a, a number of good points, um, Stuart. I do think because there were, there's definitely companies that have had work at home, you know, um, strategies in place well before this has happened. For example, HP is one of them. Um, HP has had work from home um, uh, uh, strategies and, 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 and plans for years. And I know lots of HP people and they're all over the place. They're just, it really doesn't matter where what headquarters or what division they report into. They're all over the place. But there are other companies, and, and, and interestingly enough, out here in the Bay Area, what's hurting Apple right now with their iPhone development is that they've been a very headquarters-centric organization. You know, they have that kind of philosophy that they don't like samples, as we know, that uh, come out of, the, uh, out of the campus. You know, they really uh, close the kimono in terms of sharing any type of product information. And the, as a result of that, uh, they've struggled quite a bit, you know, from a development standpoint in that it's been hard for them, even as they've asked people to work at home, even their IT capabilities are not in place 
at a strong enough level to um, help their employees work in a very secure type of way. So I, I, it, some companies are going to adapt to it. Other companies, you know, I think will say, hey, we've been doing this for years and we've, we've, we've saved a ton of money and, uh, you know, it's worked out for us. Um, I want to flip, flip the topic back to hardware, you know, very, very quickly. And then I want to hit a couple of consumer topics, uh, tech topics before we uh, get off the podcast. Rob, from an equipment standpoint, what is your, you know, what is your Batman utility configuration that you're using at home? I mean, um, you know, you and I have talked it's about a lot this of old hardware. Yet. So okay. I've been yeah, meaning to, <laughs> so like I'm talking to you on this really old iMac where the 720p webcam, well, it's a good thing we're not doing this on video. You know, it works. And at this point, I don't want to make any major capital investments. The one thing I have upgraded since this started was finally up replacing the wireless router downstairs. Mm -hmm. uh, and weirdly enough, I'm not always sure it's made a huge difference. It seems like they're, they're, since everyone else is on their home network all the time, uh, the network was getting really slow upstairs. It doesn't help. I'm speaking to you from a, a about a hundred year old house. There's a lot of plaster walls here. Plaster mm -hmm. walls have little mesh wiring inside them, which is not great for reception. Um, so did replace that. It's improved things a little bit. Um, I think one thing we're going to see out of this is a lot more attention to the quality of webcams where, you know, right now you can buy a brand new iMac from Apple and it's got the same basic 720p yes. webcam. They used to call it the iSight webcam. Um, you know, the cameras you have in phones mm -hmm. just to take selfies are so much better than what you have in your desktops and laptops. Well, you know, to that point, I had a call yesterday with a very um, senior person at uh, one of the, I'll say it's one of the top three PC OEMs that are in the United States. You can guess who they are. And uh, the one thing we, we have taught, we, we specifically talked about is that they are going to make a pivot in their notebook strategy to put much higher quality uh, webcams in their notebooks. And, you know, you know, the best evidence of that is that look at what's happened to the broadcast industry over the last six or eight weeks is more of these folks have been broadcasting out of their home on their trusty, on their trusty uh, MacBooks or their Windows notebooks. The vast majority of the, 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 the notebooks on the market, including the Apple um, MacBooks, even a recent, recent vintage one, has a pretty crappy uh, webcam. You know, and now's not a good time to buy a webcam, by the way, because Logitech is completely sold out. Yeah. Um, uh, um, I, I love the Brio. I've been using that for years and it had, you know, 4K broadcast quality. But most people, now's not a, time, a good time to buy a webcam. So I, I do think that uh, the point you've made that you'll see a sea change, I think, in the terms of the quality of, uh, of webcams, because it, it, I think people are discovering it's a pretty important thing, especially if you're doing video um, if you're doing uh, video conferencing on a routine basis. What about you, John? What's your kind of go-to hardware that you're using? Well, it's funny you mentioned that about um, webcams. They were like the, the toilet paper of technology, right? That the very first day <laughs> this happened, I had friends saying, oh, I'm going to do my dance class from home. I'm going to do this from home. What webcam? And I, I went to recommend them. They were gone. They were just not available, <laughs> any of right. them. Um, you know, but, uh, yeah, so that's definitely a thing. And in fact, I'm using an external one, even though I have like the latest and greatest laptop, um, here, uh, the microphones, the sound quality, I'm doing, you know, doing a lot of, uh, podcasts for people and stuff. And, and I actually use a, a blue microphone, a separate microphone, um, apart from everything else. So it's kind of a kludgy system with a lot of cables. 
now, right. even though everything's theoretically built into the laptop or the desktop, I'm using a lot of separate components. One that I found over the years that is no longer really necessary is that all-in-one printer. I used to mm -hmm. be at PC Magazine and we'd do hundreds and hundreds of printer reviews and that was a staple of stuff that you had to have in a home office. And now mine is just sitting there. Um, <laughs> and you know, if I need to print out something, let's say, you know, you're shelter in place right now or I self-isolating and you have the family at home, even if the kids want a full color printout, you're probably better off trying to nip out quickly to the local FedEx office, you know, where they have that and it will cost you 10 cents rather than $50 for the ink cartridges. Uh, that's a component from the home office that doesn't seem to be necessary anymore. I also concur with Rob that, uh, look, you know, a lot of people ask me about Wi-Fi. The best solution I've found are the mesh network. Mesh routers, right, I was about to say that, yep. So mm -hmm. yeah, so the Netgear Orbi and the uh, Velop from Linksys are the two uh, products that worked well for me, even in a big house. I have a, mm -hmm. one house that's really big and, very poor uh, connections and they seem to work very well in those locations, but they're not cheap. You know, a lot of my friends were like, I just want, you know, an extender for 50 bucks. I'm like, eh, those don't really work. I'm sorry. Where they yeah, work for about two or three days and then they get an interrupt problem and that's the end of that. Yeah, but there, so, are, there, there are, the Orbi is, and I, I'm a big fan of the Netgear stuff, and I actually have an Orbi. I love, especially the new Wi-Fi 6 Orbi is, is pretty nice, but, but there are affordable solutions out there. I mean, Plume, has their super pods or it's a fairly uh, affordable, it's a very affordable solution. In fact, I think they have a COVID-19 special on their website, like, <laughs> most, like most of the tech companies, but Eero, the company that Amazon uh, purchased. But I, but you know, to your point, John, I think that to me, that would be the first piece of advice I'd give someone saying, you know what? And most people are not going to have a home office. Their home office is going to be wherever they are in the house. Right. And since they're gonna, are going to be roaming around, you know, that mesh networking capability where, you, you know, it, it gives you um, pretty optimized performance regardless of where you are, especially if you've got kids fighting over, you know, they're playing games or streaming movies, you know, there's four or five distinctive usage models going on at the same time. Um, the mesh um, router functionality is a big deal. Uh, Stuart, what, what's your thoughts on like, what kind of hardware do you think that uh, you'd recommend to someone or what, what do you, you know, what can you not live with, live without? You know, from a well, home. this is this is going to sound a little weird, and it's probably going to sound um, antediluvian and probably impossible for most people at this stage of the game. But I have a landline, and I only give people my landline phone number. I had talked before about, and Rob had talked about it also about maintaining those boundaries, both physical and emotional boundaries. And one of the boundaries that I found very early on during the cell phone era was that if you gave your cell phone number to people, they tend to call it yeah. and they tend to call it when you do not want to speak to anybody. <laughs> so I have made it my mission in life not to give anybody my phone number, my cell phone number. So when I am not home, I don't work unless I choose to. I only have a landline for business purposes. That's the phone number on my business card. So if people want to get a hold of me for work, air quotes, they call my landline. And if I'm not home, they'll leave a message and I'll get back to them or they can email me. The only time I will give people an, an, a, cell phone, um, a cell phone number is I'm going to CES 
or another big show where, you know, an editor has to get a hold of me or something like that, or I have to make an appointment with, a, you know, the public relations person for a meeting. But I always tell them it's a borrowed temporary number that it will not be good after the show. Well, now your little secret's out. <laughs> I have your number, but that's because we often are... We travel together. To that's different. John yeah. has my number, and so, 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 Mark, I, you I, have yeah. my number, and Rob <laughs> has my number. Um, but outside out of a small circle of friends, um, um, <laughs> for the general world income. Now, the second thing is, again, along those borders, multiple email addresses is a must. I have a business email address. And I have a personal email address. And then I have an online shopping email address. And I have a banking financial insurance email address. And never the twain shall meet. Not only does it help to separate what you're doing for a living and your other activities, but if one email address gets spammed, it doesn't kill your entire life. So for, for my business life, there's one email address. My friends and family have another email address. What I do with my banking and, and all my insurance and Medicare. Yes, I'm on Medicare. Um, and all that other stuff is another email address. And then when I'm just online, you know, oh, please give us your email address and we'll send you. That's another email address. So if one gets spammed, the other ones are clear, and I know which email address is which. So when I'm doing business, I'm on one meal email address, and I'm not being distracted by input from a lot of the other email addresses. So, so in summary, Stuart, your advice to people who are going to be working home for a long period of time is to get a burner number. That's essentially what your uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Or you simply get a phone number that you only give to the friends and family, no. and then you get a second SIM for everybody else. No, I think that, you know, the one thing that each of you didn't bring it up, and then I want to kind of conclude over the last two or three minutes with a topic about just the consumer space in general, is the one thing that I have fallen in love with, and I, I'm fortunate, as you guys are, is that you get a lot of gear from different vendors. And, you know, one of the hottest spa um, um, uh, spaces right now in the display area are these wide aspect displays. And I've been very fortunate that I've been able to test and play with several of them. And right now I'm using this glorious Dell 49 inch wide aspect display. And it's really, it's really not optimized for gaming. I mean, so it's not bad for gaming, but it's really a productivity display. And I don't know whether you guys have multiple displays hooked up. That's a pretty um, common usage model for a lot, of, uh, a lot of folks who work at home. But I love the idea of having this wide display where I can have a spreadsheet, I can have a PowerPoint open, I can do have four or five different windows open in full glory. You know, I mean, so to me, that's a, I would easily recommend that to someone. And the prices are really not that bad. I mean, you can get a, a pretty good 49 inch display for under a thousand dollars in most. Well, I, 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 will, I will speak for, for John and myself. If I had room for such a thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my home office yeah. isn't that big either. I think this does right. also speak. We've been talking about Rob. Rob you got to get a, you got to get a bigger house, Rob. That's, that's what you got to do. <laughs> yeah, right? no, no thank you. <laughs> Uh, the the all-in-one computer, you know, no, you, you want to have a nice big display that you can connect to multiple machines. Uh, unless web cameras get a lot better, you want a separate one. Uh, I've got a separate desktop USB microphone. So the the notion that you're going to take the computer out of the box and everything's in it, even if it's a laptop, is looking increasingly frail these days. Mm-hmm.
Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, but I have to admit, I have, <laughs> I do have a television <laughs> in my office, a big screen television, as well as, you know, a desktop system with a monitor, 24 inch monitor and a laptop in case all else fails. I mean, that, that's the other thing for people a home office to have some kind of a backup because yep. I've had the desktop fail or just decide in the middle of something, it was just going to reboot and crash everything. Um, and so I still had a laptop that I could pick up and still do some work on or connect with somebody I was working for a client that, you know, and still make that appointment and not feel like, Oh, I'm making excuses. Now my equipment's broken and I don't know what I'm doing. So that, that helps to have some kind of a backup. I think for people that oh, just happened to me, up. I was on my desktop and my Zoom crapped out on me. So I had to go grab my laptop from the other room and I'm on my laptop now. There you go. Backup bandwidth is also really important. And and here I, I have to give a shout out to the wireless carriers that all said, have a bunch of data, good for mobile hotspot use, which usually the, the shtick is it's unlimited data as long as you don't want to share it with any other device. But you know, Verizon's giving out 15 gigs of data to pretty much everybody. Yep. Mm-hmm. T-Mobile's got 10 or 20, depending on if you're on Sprint or T-Mobile. Uh, AT&T, it's, uh, I think it's 15 on some plans, not on others. And that can be really important if your connection is slowing down, if your Wi-Fi is horribly congested in one room, if you just want to isolate one device from the network and tether it off your phone, you can do it and you won't immediately burn through your device's quota. Your, your plan's quota. In the last uh, couple of minutes we have here, um, just looking forward over the next few months af- after we get past this, what, you know, not necessarily related to the pandemic, could be, but, you know, necessarily, and that's not, not the answer. I'm, I'm not looking for it to be connected to, um, uh, to the pandemic. What tech topics are you most uh, curious about over the next few months, the way it's gonna, things are going to pan out? I'll, I'll start with, uh, let me start with Stuart. Is there anything on your radar screen that you think jumps out that you, you know? Yes exactly what we are doing now. I think what has happened is that Zoom went from uh, 10 million to 200 million users in uh, five weeks. Five weeks, yeah, right. In three, five, about three months. Yeah. And you're seeing also obviously up ticking upwards of Skype and FaceTime and Google Hangouts and Happy Time or whatever the name of that other service is. The name escapes me at the moment. But, and plus you're also seeing this grand uptick in Netflixing and chilling and all the other streaming services, it's putting in a huge load on the, on the, on the internet distribution infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And we have all been sort of blue skying for the last year or so about uh, 5G and Wi-Fi 6 and, and, and some subtopics that I've been sort of following, which includes a high, a high, more higher efficient video coding, such as HEVC and H. H. slash H.265, all of these technologies that have been slowly sort of working their way into the video infrastructure, I think are now, there's going to be a much larger emphasis on getting them out there. Because now that we are all Zooming, it may slide down a little bit, but I think it is now here to stay. Mm-hmm. If you look throughout the history of grand communication revolutions going all the way back to the printing press and the telegraph and the telephone radio, their gestation periods, they had a gestation period. And a lot of them lasted about a generation, between 10 and 20 years. And then something happened 
either mm-hmm. societally or technologically that suddenly ramped their usage up dramatically and brought them into everyday use. Mm-hmm. And this is going up to email and texting and social media all went through the same pattern we're doing now. Mm-hmm. So Zoom and all of this, now that we know how to do it and it's easy to do and we're comfortable with it, it may slide down a little bit once everybody sort of goes back to work, but this is here to stay and it's going to continue to put a great deal of pressure on mm-hmm. the video infrastructure. So I think the importance of 5G and Wi-Fi 6 and more efficient video codecs all of a sudden have gotten much more important, important, especially at the distribution end, to make sure that the system can can deal with this vast increase in video streaming, especially high-def video streaming. Right. John, question, same question for you. Gosh, you know, uh, a lot of things are going to change, and, and uh, I do have concerns about the infrastructure, but I was really thinking more about the power grid. Mm-hmm. You know, as a lot of us are here uh, at home now, um, I will see it in Manhattan, even on the normal course of an Upper East Side day in the summertime, you'll see brownouts that are mm-hmm. not announced, but you'll see the lights dim. You look around and think, gee, what just happened to the power? With everybody home and working from home, that will be an interesting challenge as we go into the summer months, and it'll probably be an interesting challenge for other places too as they go into the summer. Um, that's definitely going to be an issue. And mobility is the other thing for me because often um, there's been an awful lot of speculation about, well, will this slow down the adoption of electric vehicles or the development of autonomous vehicles or not? And in many ways, you know, uh, it probably won't. Some companies have already, the big three are kind of in trouble right now because they can't sell SUVs and cars. So that's their major you know, revenue stream. But in terms of development, it may push a lot of this forward in the sense that I don't want to be getting in a car with some other people or a driver or anybody else for that matter. You know? And I want to know that that vehicle is being cleaned and is safe. And I'm not in such a hurry to get there like I was before. So it, it'll be interesting to see how that changes the landscape and the whole idea of shared mobility and, and what people's attitudes are. Um, it's, it's definitely interesting. I've got a lot of people who are saying, my boss, my business is asking me when I'll be ready to come back. Right. Which is the strangest question, right? When, you know, instead of telling the employee, okay, it's time to come back, they're asking them, are you ready to come back? And that's going to change things. And, you know, the, and the, before Rob answers the, uh, the question I asked a few moments ago, um, the observation I would make, it, this is going to be an interesting test because I, the, the point you're ma- you made, Stuart, about the importance of 5G, the importance of Wi-Fi 6, to be able to handle all these extra demands that are happening at home as the workforce now, or at least part of it, migrates home and, and stays there for a period of time. The interesting thing is going to be, and this is really a, really a function of economics as well, is that as 5G comes on, as Apple announces their new 5G phone, if they announce it, I mean, you can, every day you can read a rumor, oh, they're delaying it. <laughs> uh, other days you'll say, oh, yeah, they're on schedule for it. Yeah. The question is really going to be, from an Apple perspective, is um, will people who haven't worked for two or three months Will they have a stomach, even if they're a loyalist to Apple, and there are a lot of loyalists out there, are, will they have a stomach to buy a $1,500 5G phone? You know, and it's going to test Apple's brand strength. You know, uh, so, uh, Rob, how, that, that element of the discussion, what are, you, what, what are your thoughts on that? 
exactly the point of meaning to make this the cell phone industry's focus on flagship phones thousand dollar plus ones that that you know maybe they fold they have some 4k resolution they have a lot of features that you don't necessarily need but which look good on a spec sheet and get attention at an event like mobile world congress or whatever uh I think the recent events have really put a serious question to the utility of that. Why would you want to buy? And look at Apple's lineup right now. You can buy an iPhone SE, the new one, for four hundred dollars, or you can spend three times that much and for a, a good phone, phone. That you can't and, and, unlock with your face when you're wearing a mask. Right. So, <laughs> and it's a well-featured phone. It's not a. It's not a yeah. low-end phone. It's a very, very good phone. Yeah, and you know, same thing uh, on, the, on the Android end of the ecosystem. I'm much more excited about the Google Pixel 4a that we all would have seen at Google I.O. Uh, three weeks from now, two, two weeks from now, than you know, the latest $1,000 model from Samsung or LG. You right. really shouldn't spend 1000 bucks on a phone. It's a small piece of electronics you can easily break if you drop. 400 bucks is fine. Uh, beyond that, I think resilience is a word I want to hear from a lot of people in business and politics. How do we make sure that we have a society that is more resilient the next time something like this happens? Perhaps it's not such a good idea to outsource everything to the other side of the Pacific Ocean or have so much of the stuff we consume going through the same bunch of choke points. I've really gotten to appreciate my farmer's market where the uh, meat I might buy came from some farm in Virginia or Pennsylvania, not North Dakota or Iowa or whatever. Uh, last topic I want to talk about, then we're going to have to shut this down because this has been terrific because um, it's, it's important to the four of us. Trade shows, you know, are they going to survive? I mean, are, is there going to be a CES this year? I mean, if you had told me three months ago that almost every, in fact, every major technology show between now and the end of the year or certainly into October, November would, be, would have been canceled. If you had told me that two or three months ago over something like this, I was you're crazy. That's never going to happen. But, you know, the four of us, um, the five of us, I should say, no, four of us, I see four people. We live and die. We, we live and die on going to trade shows. I mean, right. and, uh, you know, and I, and I can tell you from the clients I work with, many of them are, because they can't count on them. They don't know that this is going to be a long-term thing. But most of the big companies and clients that I work with have scaled back their budgets because simply because they, you know, CES, for example, when a company shows up at CES, they're, first of all, they're playing that out eight, nine, 10 months um, before. It's kind of like the, the, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. You know, the, you, you know, you hear the stories about, well, we're, we're planning the next uh, parade a year in advance because it takes that much time to, pr to prepare the balloons and things like that. Well, CES is like that too. And the question is, you know, can a company spend with confidence millions and millions of dollars that they may not recoup if the event doesn't happen. So what are your thoughts on the future of trade shows? Let me start with uh, John. Yeah, I, I was one of the first way back in January after the last CES, I was saying to people, well, you know, there's not going to be an X. Geneva Car Show, Mobile World Congress, IFA. I was already saying that in January and people were like, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. And look, I had business trips planned. I, I canceled half a dozen business trips got canceled between then and, and where we are now. And I'm disappointed, you know, to be quite honest, I was looking forward to seeing you guys and everybody else and, and, you know, new technologies at all these places. Um, 
it's definitely going to be a challenge because as Stuart pointed out, look, that's where these new ideas come into place. It's that water cooler effect. You bump into somebody, somebody says, hey, did you think of this? I didn't think of that. They hear an idea, some, they come up with some new idea. That's where a lot of this stuff you know, germinates and happens. And that's mm-hmm. gonna be a challenge for all of us. Um, obviously there's no IFA, which is the big consumer electronics trade show in Berlin because the government said we're not going to have any events that size. Now, Las Vegas and CES, that's a big question mark because as some people have seen, people in Las Vegas have a different attitude about whether they should be open or not. Um, You know, but you're, as you point out, look, if we're not going to come, you know, you can build it, but people won't come. So (laughs) I think that we probably are not going to see a CES in January, 2021. It just, doesn't seem like it's going to be feasible at that time. Stuart, I see you nodding your head. What are your thoughts on the future of trade I, show? I, I, I agree with John, but um, <laughs> two, well, I think there's one major thing, and the, the, the problem with speculating about this, I mean, listen, CTA has got to be planning for this. Now, they start planning for the next CES, even while the current CES is going, going on. on. They have a whole room where people come in and choose their booth for the next show. So they have already invested a huge amount of resources into making sure that there will be a 2021 show. And between that and, shall we say, the mayor of Las Vegas very enthusiastically (laughs) wanting (laughs) to open up the city, the pressure on CTA to hold this event is going, and there's a third factor involved. They're building, as you saw at the last show, an enormous new building, which is pretty much being built specifically for CES. Elon Musk, who is already in favor of opening up the economy, I don't know if you know this, but they're building this huge underground vacuum tube system. Yes, yes, right. People around the convention center or now the convention complex. So there has been a huge amount of resources invested in the 2021 show. And, and it CTA, I think would have to have a, a metaphorical pandemic gun to its head to call off this show. Uh-huh. Um, that's the first thing. That's a big first part. The second part is, we are discussing this now. We are discussing whether or not the world still exists while we've been in bunkers for a month. And a bunker mentality easily leans towards the world will never be the same again. And yet history tells us that is the completely wrong attitude to have. One, we don't know what the treatment, the medical treatment or vaccination situation will be come the end of the year. We don't know whether or not we will get that fall uh, second wave that the, the pandemic experts have been talking about. If there is no second wave in the fall, the pressure increases exponentially to get everything back to normal again. So, mm-hmm. so the world in six months from now, or even three months from now, could look completely and utterly different than it does today. Now, Will people, people go to the show and shake hands? Will people go to the show and half of the people on the show floor be wearing masks? Absolutely, no matter what happens. 
But for us to be speculating what CTA is going to do, given what I have just sort of laid out, the, inc the immense financial and resource pressure on them, both from the industry, on themselves, and from the city of Las Vegas, is going to be enormous. So I, I, my gut would say they can't possibly have a show, but it's April. Well, and you know, the amount of work put into it, well, the amount of work they put into this already what? is going to be hard to ignore. Well, and Stuart, and the one thing I would say, and both you and you and John can certainly appreciate this because you guys live in New York. If you recall the, the darkest days of 9-11, there were people out there who said New York will never come back. Right. You know, that, that, you know, that working in New York, there's going to be a, an exodus of every financial services company in Manhattan. People are not going to go back to Broadway shows, that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. we, we all know how that turned out. You know, America tends to be a very ingenious and, and, and resilient and entrepreneurial um, uh, entity and works through these problems and generally does it in a very cost-effective way too. We don't do it at a premium. We do it in a way that, that scales. So, um, but uh, Rob, your thoughts on that. I want to get your view on the trade show um, topic. Yeah. So I'm now, you know, two months into interacting with people only through the screen of this device or through other devices. And, you know, it can work for meetings. It can work for getting things done. It doesn't work for serendipity. You don't have that effect of running into people you had never met before hearing new ideas. That's why people meet in groups. We are mm -hmm. social animals. You know, I don't know how long it will take us to get back to that point. I am a long-term believer in the ability of humanity to prevail over difficult obstacles. Uh, I think we will have a vaccine. I think we'll figure out how to treat this. I don't know if that'll happen in time for CES. I really don't know. You know, my, my conference schedule has now been blasted clean through at least August, and I'm sure Black Hat and DEF CON, the hacker conference in Vegas, they're not happening. Uh, I have tickets to see... Uh, my wife and I have tickets to see Hamilton at the Kennedy Center in August. That's a big question mark. Aoife's not happening. Um, oh. You know, I, I, I miss travel. I, mm -hmm. I miss yeah. airports. I even miss convention centers. Maybe not really. <laughs> um, you know, we'll get back to these things, but it is unclear. And with a show like CES, I mean, remember, what killed Mobile World Congress was not actually scientific evidence of the, the coronavirus is here. It was big companies saying, we don't want to have our names and lights at this. We don't yeah. want to get blamed for somebody getting sick. Right. It was Nokia. It was a liability. LG. Yeah. Right. You know, all these ones, even when the, the Chinese vendors were saying, you know, I think it was ZTE said, you know, everyone, everyone who was going there has already left China. They'll be quarantined for two weeks beforehand. In fact, we shouldn't worry about people coming from Italy or Germany, which we didn't know at the time. Uh, and so if, Enough large companies think CES 2021 is going to be too hot to handle, then I don't know. And yeah, that, that's a show I've been going to every year since 1998. And it, it would be sort of poetically apt, I guess, but the one reason that I can't go is that it doesn't happen. <laughs> and it gets canceled for the first time ever. Uh, but well, we, we do need these things. It can't all just be, you know, most tech companies can't pull an Apple or a Google and say, come to our offices for this exclusive demo. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. Uh, that, that doesn't get business done for a lot of the companies that make the interesting products and, and services and apps in these various technology ecosystems. Yeah. The, the only thing I would, and I want to, and this has been terrific and guys, thanks for calling in. The, the only thing that I think will be very interesting 
and it may have something to do on whether CES lives or dies from an execution standpoint, is we've got WWDC happening in about 45 days or so. And as you know, you guys know, WWDC is Apple's big, big event that typically happens in San Jose, not too far from where I live. And you know, it's it's not just the keynotes. I mean, keynotes is something you can stream; that's easy to, to replicate. Where the where the action happens at WWDC is in the multiple breakout sessions they have for, with the you know three or four thousand developers that show up with that are not broadcast. You know, there only might be fifty people in the room or a hundred people in the room. And if Apple could pull the WWDC off in a virtual way, and God knows, you know, Apple will probably approach it with Broadway show-like precision, that might be a model that other companies could replicate. Now, I don't think that, to the points that Rob made, uh, I think there are um, there's virtues of trade shows that are impossible to replicate. That you know that uh, you know the going to a bar, bumping into someone you didn't expect to see, exchanging a business card. Um, that kind of banter that's not planned or scheduled, that's going to be hard to replicate in, in a virtual manner, but uh, we'll see how it plays out. And uh, it will be interesting. And I can just, uh, speaking for myself, I do get it. I do get a, uh, I hope there is a chance for CES to go on because I'd like to see all three of you guys there, you know, or, you or might some other future. ripped trade. off on hotels and airfare. <laughs> well, God knows if you book it. Although someone told me the other day, they tried to book uh, airfare, for CES now, just to see what they would get in terms of um, cheap airfare, and it wasn't that cheap still, at least from you know. <laughs> they're they're still holding I, the airlines are still holding some faith they can recoup some of their losses, but good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. listen, guys, thank you very much. We got to we got to do another uh, call like this. It's been too it's it's been too long. Do appreciate your time, um, Rob. How can how can folks reach you and and find out about what you got what you're doing? Uh, first name, last name, Rob, R-O-B, Peguerrero, P-E-G-O-R-A-R-O. That's me at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Flickr, what have you. And you can also find my work at USA Today, Fast Company, Wirecutter, and many other fine publishing outlets. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at JQ on Tech. It's JQ on Tech. Uh, that's a pretty easy one to do. And uh, if you're looking for stuff about mobility and autonomy and EVs, that's on the road to autonomy.com. And uh, Stuart, for those people who are not going to call your burner number, how do they reach you? Um, <laughs> I have a, a resume website. It's stuartwalpen.com. And there's a place where you can leave messages for me there as well. And my Twitter handle is my name as well. Great. Well, guys, thanks for calling in. Thanks for participating in today's uh, podcast. Uh, Please follow more insights and strategy on our usual social media suspect partners. It's Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And until next time, have a great week. 